The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Coming up today, we'll be giving the lowdown on the business end of the season. It's the Dumont of not only the Premiership in England, but also the Pro 14. We'll be chatting to Johan Ackerman, the Gloucester head coach, and Rory Lawson, the former Scotland scrum half. Plus, we'll have Rob Vickerman, the Sevens guru on the London Sevens. First, I want to tell you that I'm very pleased to say that with me to discuss all this is the former Bath and England fullback Matt Perry. Hello, Matt. How are you? Yeah, good evening, Brian. How are you? I'm all right. In the end, it turned out pretty much as predicted. Let's go through the uh, the games at the weekend. Why don't we start with the Saints clash at uh, Exeter? Saints didn't know until a couple of minutes before the final whistle that they were going through because Quinns had lost to Was, so they give it the best shot and they came up quite short. If I were Exeter, I'd be quite pleased about the six tries and I'd be quite pleased about the fact that their legendary patience, stroke attritions, whatever you like to call yeah. it, in the 22 seems to be back because they appear to have gone away from that, but it's fairly resounding, the victory. Yeah, it was. I mean, we know about Exeter, don't we? They keep the ball. They're absolutely relentless at the breakdown. And they play for 80 minutes. So to score those tries with what you'd say is a, a probably, you know, half full team, really. Uh, they had some youngsters in there. You know, they came through and uh, Saints, you know, they operated their best with their full teammates. So I think it will be an interesting sort of lead up to the game uh, in the semis. Well, it's got to be a good psychological blow for, for Exeter, knowing that they can do that. I wonder, I mean, it's a difficult thing for Saints because they play and have had success with this new style of uh, open rugby. But obviously you make mistakes if you do that. And I can't see them getting on top in either the line-out or scrums, which means Exeter will get their own ball and they keep it, as you quite rightly say. So it's a really difficult approach for them. I'm not sure exactly how they'll try and tackle it. Uh, I think they'll they'll probably try and pick the pace of the game up. So, you know, I think with Cobus Reynach at, at nine is absolutely fantastic. If he's fit, yeah. He's critical to Saints. Uh, he's been a real, you know, linchpin for them, you know, seeming the, the fours and the backs together. But I think for this time of the season, it's about the energy that the team has. There'll be a few injuries around, but can they, you know, get players in that may not have played majority of this season for the big games? And in the big games, as we know, it's a very fine line between winning and losing. And there'll be a certain period of the game, you know, where one team will come, come through on top, probably through decision-making and leadership. How much do you think the Sandy Park factor is? I mean, obviously people, and quite rightly, say that home advantage counts for, I don't know how much, but certainly something. But Sandy Park itself, with the variable wins and being you know, used to that, it seems to me that that's slightly more down there. They have their own subclimate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, having been down there, the supporters, the club, the owner, a great story about Tony Rowe driving the bus to away games. So they've created a culture where, you know, they're all in together. Um, when, you, when you drive past it off the motorway, you think, you know, how can they build something so great there? But it's, it's a real place. They know how to play rugby there. And they've got great trust between the coach and the players. And, and you can just see that. It's, uh, you know, they're away from the, uh, the big time. But, um, you know, they make it work. Well, Quinns could have secured the final playoff place. It didn't because they lost to Wasp 20. 5-27, to 27, and indeed, 60 feats in the final seven matches undid a lot of good work. I 
spoke to the uh, director of rugby, Paul Gustin, at the players' dinner, and he was quite open that there's a lot of work to do. Both them and Wasps, when you look at the last few seasons, and Di Young has said this, he must be sick of saying, look, just inconsistency. But what is that? What is that down to, in your experience? Well, I think we we have to look at the All Blacks as a, a kind of best practice team. I think they operate at eighty percent at all times, but they they know when they have to go to one hundred percent, and they execute as fifteen players on the pitch. They lift their game, they lift their mentality, and they provide a framework where they just lift the intensity at the right time. I mean, we talk about teams that play for 40 but then drop off in the second half. For me, that is about attitude. It can be about fitness, but the players at this level are all very fit, talented, not much margin and difference in their, their capability. It's just can they come together at the right time to be able to show that inconsistency? And so much of the game now around the laws is discipline. If you have any lack of discipline, it's really going to affect you. And uh, you have to be educated on the laws as well because they're changing so frequently. Well, uh- Unprompted, I'm glad you brought that word up because I raised this in my Telegraph column and I've been going on about this for a long time. Although it is a facet of discipline, obviously not giving unnecessary penalties away, and it's an important one, discipline is also this, not stepping out of the line you know, and creating the dog leg, mm. you know, counting properly on the short side, making sure the throw isn't short on the vital line-out, making sure you're concentrating as eight on the vital scrum, making sure that you are in the right position for the chase, you're not in front, stuff like that. Mm. It's, people talk about accuracy and they usually apply it to the breakdown, but to me, teams like the All Blacks and the teams that show the most consistency are the ones that get those basic skills right much more often. Yeah, they do. When they're operating at 80 and then knowing for 10 minutes they've got to go to 100, but it's individual responsibility, isn't it? You've got to be looking at the game, the situation, if you get given a pass, which is in your, your attitude's not quite there, it's going to affect you. And, and this, you know, the refs are so hot now on all areas, but it's not discipline, like I said, at the breakdown. It's dropping a pass here. It's slightly being out of the line. Um, teams have the ability to, to hit the space at all, all angles. And so defence and attack, you've got to be right on it. OK, we'll, we'll leave uh, Leicester Bath just for a second. So will still have a chance because of the way the permutations work with La Rochelle. Of uh, of getting a European place, they, I mean, crazy game forty six forty one against Gloucester. And we'll speak to Johan Hackerman about that. So we will see whether they can get that. I was surprised that Saracens went down at Worcester. I mean, Worcester must get the prize for the most improved team. I think. Yeah, they do. Again, you, you know, another team which has I think's done well to stay up this year. Every year they seem to be developing. Solomon, he's a good, solid coach, very genuine. So he's getting the best out of the players, you know, he's got there. But it is, you know, Saracen put a very... Uh, it was a very much a second team. Yeah, it was a second team. And they're saving their players for the energy for the, uh, for the semis. So just shows what, you know, the league has been this year. Any team can beat any team, which has made it quite a crazy year in terms of uh, positions and points and, and movements of, uh, of teams who've been quite low, but then suddenly they could easily get up to sixth and, and higher. Well, it was a fairly poor game, actually, in Newcastle-Bristol. There were a lot of errors uh, around, not much, no comfort, really, for Newcastle already relegated. But Bristol, they had ambitions to try and get in the top six, didn't quite make it. How would you uh, assess their first season and the uh, way in which Pat Lambs led them? I think he's done really well. He's created a sense of uh, team spirit within the team. They're 
pretty clear on how they play. They like to play rugby from anywhere. It did catch them out early season uh, where they got caught out wide, breakdown and, and penalties were given against them a lot. But they're, they're there to play. And when you've got 15 players that want to play rugby, they've won some great games and they've showed a lot of commitment to actually continue that. Well, Bath winners away at Welford Road. Now, I used to say that was a, a rarity, but it's not anymore. I mean, they're a terrible season, Leicester, and we've gone into this time and time again with a lot of ex-Tigers, and there's a lot of work to do there. Major surgery required all throughout the club, and that includes management, not just in terms of on the field and the direct input, but higher up the corporate chain. I've spoken to you about this before, and your contributions have always been very, very insightful and intelligent. But I have to come back to this. Given the amount of money that has been put in there, they really should be doing better. Are they, are they clo- is it a question of nearly there, or is there something you think that is still required to found you know, that success? I always relate it to Exeter and Saracens, and for me they have a team of coaches which trust each other and a playing group which trusts the coaches. Players aren't stupid. If they see a slight chink in... Uh, an alignment or agreement between a forwards coach and a backs coach and then you may have a head coach who's very system orientated process trying to put a system on a team I don't think it works I think they've underperforming I think they done well to get top six Stuart Hooper coming in and we will all back him and uh, you know I Is think it the right appointment or do you think they might have looked um, I mean I don't know what the due diligence process was I don't know whether he was always bound to do that and he was uh, groomed for that or whether they went through the process and, and, and came to that decision it, it would seem to me in the same way as Manchester United you know they ought to really have done the whole process if he came out on top great but yeah. I just wonder how much searching they did they rate him very highly he was a great on-field leader if I was him he's got a big job in terms of cultural definition for Bath and I'm sure as you know Brian you talk about great clubs that have gone before and it's the old players oh, you know, talking here and there. But I, I think if he was to interview 20 to 30 ex-players, management, supporters, people around the city, local businesses, and get their view on what made Bath where it was and kind of co-design it with them, get that data, look at the patterns and themes and overlay his thinking and his philosophy to thread the team together. Because at the moment, you've got a team which is full of individual talent. But what Bath's relying on is that individual talent to win games. And it has. But it's also lost, you know, serious games through a lack of on-field leadership. So he's got, I think he's got to define the culture. He's got to look at that leadership. And Saracens have done it. They put their values and principles on how they're going to play the game. Because it's all very well saying... Okay, we want to be top four, but it's almost the mechanics on how you're going to go about that. And I think Bath have slightly been lost. You can have all the money and fair play to Bruce Craig, you know, fantastic owner. And he, he's got a big vision for the club with the stadium and the facilities. But it just shows the attitude and behavior to, and commitment. And you recruit players on character at Bath. And then you, they come into a team where they know what principles you want to play by and that's a mixture of uh, being very direct but also taking risks and I don't think the team have threaded together as a as a dynamic agile team with the talent they currently have. Well one of the things that you can say about Gloucester is that they seem to have found that sort of spirit they seem to have found that sort of sodality and I'm really pleased to say we can speak
to the man who is at least partially, if not solely, responsible for this. It's the Gloucester head coach, Johan Ackerman, who's on the line. Hello, Johan. Hi there, Brian. Hope you're well. I'm well. I'm here with Matt. Um, look, congratulations on getting into the semi-final. I just wonder, I wrote a, a piece about this and what Gloucester's prospects were. It seems to me, your back five of the scrum, if they play well, have the possible, you know, have the capability of making it tough for any team. Is that where you're going to start the challenge? Yeah, thanks for speaking to you, Brian, and, and also hi there, Matt. I think, uh, you know, we do believe that our back five can compete, hopefully, if they're at their best. And, and like like anything in life, you have your better days and your and your not-so-good days, but at their best, hopefully they they can compete against the teams, and especially, like, uh, on, the, on the weekend. But, you know, saying that it's just the squad that we're playing against has proven it on a more consistent base, and they showed it that they can do it at the highest of levels. The Maria Togis and the uh, Billy Vanapolos and those guys have done it over and over, not just in playoffs, but also in international. So it's going to be a massive challenge. I think Ben Morgan, for example, and those guys has, 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 has a, had a good season, especially Ben after my first year and, and how we excelled. So I think individually the guys can take a lot of confidence out of that performance, but it's it's collectively hopefully that we will be able to, to, to compete. Yeah, and one of the things that strikes me about Saracens, more perhaps even so than Exeter, is when they have everyone fit and available and they're playing well, they have such a variety of ways that they can take the ball into contact. They're constantly keeping defences on the back foot because they are intelligent in who actually takes the ball in there. Will it be a case of you trying to do something slightly different in your usual defensive systems or a case of trying to make sure those defensive systems that exist are just played absolutely to the maximum? I think that latter part, uh, Brian, I think our defensive systems, it, it, to me, it's almost dangerous if you start trying to change things, especially in a, in a playoff week. You know, you've mm-hmm. done things for 22 weeks or, or longer. You've, you've tried to change players, maybe a, a system and mindsets, and then you got there and you did some good things to get you into the situation. And, and then, you know, suddenly if you change it and under pressure, your time is less or your decision-making is less. And, and defensively, if you try to change things and players make mistakes, you know, you're actually going to cost yourself more. So I think it's it's just to stay in, 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 in what you're used to and execute it better. But saying that, you know, that's what makes Saracen so dangerous. They've got front rowers that can carry. They've got locks that can carry. They've got back rowers. They've got, you know, a back three and a, and a back line that can carry. So it's just on the day the the individual uh, contact, the individual tackle and, and uh, must be uh, just so much better than, you know, any other other team. And, and, and we have to be up for the challenge. I mean, they've been dominating us um, in that area when, when we played them. We had the one back home a bit on them, but then they were out out there were for the international players. So it's up for us to make sure we can be up there on the day against the, the best that they, they're going to provide. Hi, Johan. It's, it's Matt here. I'm fascinated to read and see how you've developed Cipriani and, and his co-design with you in regards to how Gloucester play. Past and previous England coaches haven't been able to get the best with form from him. And as a mercurial talent, I mean, how have you done it? And how important is he? Yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a give and take uh, principle, uh, Matt. I think 
Danny want uh, you must acknowledge his uh, knowledge of the game and you must uh, allow him to give what he, he knows and to express himself and to enjoy the game that he wants to play but then also you know I was quite honest with him from the day we met and, and when he came into the squad that there's certain things how I like to do it and how we I see the team that like we we want to express ourselves as a team and the character of what we would stand for as the team and, and stuff. And he's just a, a, a attack-minded fly-off, and it suits how, how I think about the game, and I think it was a good fit. And uh, we're honest with each other, you know. If, if I feel he can improve certain areas, I'll tell him. And if he feels there's stuff that we uh, think that we can improve, he's honest to tell me. And, and I think as a coach, you must be o always open for input and, and for change. And... And, and as long as, like I said, both parties walk out of the office and both agree on, on the outcome that we want to achieve, then, then hopefully it can work. And, you know, off the field, I've really enjoyed Danny. Um, I, I know there's been things in the past I didn't look at that at all. I, I treated him as, a, as any other player, and a new player and who joined the squad, and he's uh, a great guy off the field and uh, to, to be around with. Well, it's great to see. I mean... The philosophy, which I really love, is if you tell talent what to do, it tends to rebel. Whereas if you get it involved and co-design a way of working and set some principles, be honest and, and have good expectations, I think you've done that fantastically. So well done. No, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's everybody, you know, it's the, the, how the squad embraced him and the players and the rest of the management. But like I said, it's like you just say, it's, it's talent has to express themselves and, and it's just credit to everybody um, in, the, in the squad. I mean, I've followed uh, Danny's career for a long time. I saw his debut, which was almost perfect, actually, for England. It really was. And the things that have gone wrong, the things that have gone right. But one of the things that I don't think he's ever been given enough credit for is the fact that when he's on the field, his standards are very high. And his execution of basic skills is very good. And that's one of the things you can rely on him to do. Uh, and I just wonder what the rest of the backs who... Players like Sharples and Twelve Trees who have talent, but it's been on and off. And this season, they look to have been more consistent. What they say uh, about his influence and how it's worked for them. I think Brian. I think it's uh, it's you've summed it up. You've you've followed him. You've looked at him, and 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 there's no doubt in in Danny's ability, his skill set. I think he's one of the guys that I've seen is 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 so creates so much space and time for himself and 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 he's got the, the ability to pass under pressure and he, you know he's good off both hands and he's got a extremely he's faster than what people give him i suppose recognition because he's, he's actually very fast off the mark and he, you know and he's got a great vision and he's technically he knows exactly what he wants and Again, coming back to Matt's question, I think the players around him, the Mark Atkinsons, the Billy Taftries, the Oli Thorleys and those guys bought into certain things that he wanted to achieve as, as a backline. That actually helped them to, to, to get into space and to stuff. And, and it's also, again, you know, like those guys created opportunity for Danny. And, and, and I think that's why it goes either way. But I think the players accept it. But then again, you know, the Billy Taftries is so good for any team because of who he, what he stands for, his work rate, his relentlessness, and it's stuff that he can then, you know, 
give back to to the team and 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 that we can't be without. So the one part you need all the skill and all the flair, but you also need those guys who you know put in the hard yards and and credit to the rest of the backline. You know we they they did it and they got that balance. But like I said, and I don't want to get carried away. You know the fact that we're in the playoffs, we are very pleased and grateful. But I mean there's still a lot of work and growth for Gloucester, so we can't get carried away. You are right, but congratulations on doing that. Uh, Simpson joining next season should be interesting as well. And the best of luck, and thanks very much for speaking to us, Johan. Good luck. All the best. Thanks, guys. Cipriani, the funny thing is, when you look at what he's actually done, the, 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 the miscreant parts, over a whole period of a long time, they're not actually that great. <laughs> you know, it's the it's kid who nicks milk at school and, you know, stupid things. Mm. You, you can't say he's a bad lad, you know, at, at times, and I... It is a shame, I think, that the successive coaches have not been able to find a way to, to get the best out of him. And when he is actually now producing the goods, mm. he's already got an award, the player's player, he's up for the Premiership Player of the Year, that for whatever reason, Eddie Jones doesn't fancy him. I think it's a cop-out, really, Brian. I think it's a waste of talent. Um, it's not good enough for coaches in England to say he doesn't fit into our framework or way of playing. That is the job of a high-level coach to get the best out of someone's talent. Well, especially when he's got all, as we were saying, he's got all those basic skills and, you know, he executes those aspects right. Yeah, and he's a professional. And Atkinson for Gloucester this year has been a standout performer for me. And that's all because of the relationship with Cipriani. And they've just created this this kind of team, which obviously they're on the front foot, all Gloucester style, uh, making sure the forward pack is is dominating. But they're just threading beautifully in that transition. Um, and Cipriani, he does have time on the ball. And that's w- what you call a class player. Why don't we look at the Pro 14, which is also coming to its uh, crescendo. Speak to former, well, not he's a former Scotland scrum half. He's a regular contributor and co-host to this podcast. Rory Lawson's on the line. Hello, Rory. Hi, Brian. Thumping win for Glasgow over Ulster. Having seven tries. Stuart Hogg's last match uh, for them. Couple of questions. How much are they going to miss him? And what do you make of Rennie? How much of this is down to Dave Rennie? Well, how much are they going to miss Stuart Hogg? Stuart Hogg's a world-class operator. I believe if he left, if he was in any team and he left that team, he would be a big loss. I think he's, a, he's an experienced campaigner, he's a leader, and he's a world-class talent. So for me, naturally, Glasgow are going to going to miss Stuart Hogg. He contributed significantly on Friday night up at Scotston. But I think he's moving for the right reasons. I think Hogg is someone that just wants to keep getting better. He loves his rugby. He watches a lot of rugby and he and he always looks to improve. And I think he's learned a lot at Glasgow. Uh, he, he went through a rough patch a couple of years ago, but certainly in the Glasgow Warriors jersey and with Scotland, he has continued to improve, and I think changing environment whilst keeping within within touching distance of Scotland and uh, going to a great club with a very good setup and culture will be a, a good move for him. With regards to Dave Rennie and the impact he's made, he has made an impact. Uh, I think Gregor Townsend laid the foundations. Obviously, uh, Glasgow Warriors won the Pro 14 title a handful of years ago, and but I think Dave Rennie has come in and last year. He came in quite late to pre-season after Super Rugby. He developed the game plan and strategy. The game was very much based around high-tempo offload move game, but 
what I've seen this season, which has significantly improved the way that Glasgow have played, is the decision making's better in and, in and around the collision. And most of all, and what we saw on Friday night and have seen over the last month or six weeks, is the significant shift in their defensive excellence. And I think they learned a lot from a thumping loss to Saracens in the quarterfinal of Europe. And since then, they really have kicked on. They've learned some lessons. They've got some key men back to fitness. And they were really excellent on Friday night. And we'll go into essentially a home game at Celtic Park with huge amounts of confidence. Glasgow, to me, looks so good in broken field play. Do they just love it when teams kick to them and it stays in field? Yeah, I think so. And you, you know as a, as a former fullback yourself, Matt, that the game now is, is significantly based around that counter-attack opportunity. A lot of teams kick to keep the ball in. The backfield coverage is massive. And it's arguably one of the few occasions that you get momentum to be able to attack a slightly broken defence. And I say slightly broken because you've got an opportunity to get some of your own men who are tracking back, running slight blocking lines, I suppose, or, or taxi lines. Um, and I think that's where Glasgow, when you, when you look at the back three of Seymour, DTH van der Merwe and Stuart Hogg, Adam Hastings, who often pops up in the backfield, really nice broken field runner. And then Matt Fagerson as, as an explosive, powerful carrier from number eight. They've got, they've got a lot of ammunition back there who can potentially pick off a, a front five and, and it gives them the platform to attack a defence. They love playing with ball in hand. They love playing broken fields. But as I kind of touched on um, off the back of Brian's first question, I think they're doing so with a, a lot more control and their decision-making has improved significantly in the last five, six weeks. Yeah, they're almost like a team within a team because, you know, Hogg, for all his fantastic individual capability, he the way he does put other players into space and they just look naturally comfortable in the way they are countering. So uh, it's a real big, big plus for Glasgow. Yeah, definitely. And you, you add into that, I have to say that the, the forward pack are definitely due a mention because that, that was often seen as Glasgow's soft underbelly. The pack of forwards just weren't necessarily seen as a, a pack that would dominate others. And I really think they've, they've laid the platform, uh, both with and without the ball, for Glasgow. And everybody's always spoken about their attacking game. Uh, defensively, they've been really uh, impressive. Uh, all of the pack got through a lot of work at, at, on Friday night. And it's something that has been seen as, as less of an area for other sides to attack. Also, they weren't where they needed to be in a, in a title semi-final. They just they just weren't there and they made too many mistakes and they were physically bullied a bit by Glasgow. And that, that laid the platform for Glasgow to go on and score seven tries. Well, let's quickly look at um, the team they're going to be facing, Leinster. I wondered how they'd uh, rebound after being, you know, well beaten uh, by Saracens in the uh, Champions Cup final. They came through against Munster, but uh, when you're talking about up front, I mean, they possess, uh, you know... Uh, a great pack of an international quality. Devon Turner might be missing, which is is not good for them, not good for Ireland either, but good possibly for the Glasgow. Van der Fleer has come back, he's returned, so that's good. Uh, how do you see that battle going? Because that will go, as in any game, a long way to deciding who comes out on top. Yeah, it's really interesting. I watched, I watched the game on Saturday afternoon and I came out of it knowing that, that Leinster had done enough and I think that's that's all they'll really care about because Leinster want to be in finals. It would have been a disappointment 
season for them if they had made a European final and then lost in the semi-final of the domestic tournament. And as, as silly as that sounds, given that that's a huge achievement for many teams, they, given what they went through in the Champions Cup final, all they needed to do was get the result on Saturday afternoon at the RDS. And they did that. And now they can rebuild through this week. They can re-energise and they can, go, they can go after Glasgow. And they'll go in with, with big confidence. Toner will be a loss. He's an absolute titan in the line-out line time. He's a big man that gets around the field. He's a classy operator. But I see Scott Fardy will drop in there. Josh van der Fleer went very well. James Ryan, also in the second row, just gets through so much work. And, you know, you can't, you can't question the Leinster front row. Uh, I think they will, they will be going into this game very wary of the threats that Glasgow will pose. And they'll be looking to, to sign off the season with a big performance because that is where they are now. They're a, they're a side that is built to be in finals and built to win finals. They've come out on the wrong end of one in Europe and now they'll be, they'll be looking to defend this Guinness Pro 14 title. Just a very uh, quick final one, if you don't mind, Rory. It is at home, notionally, because it's at Celtic Park and not Scottsdale, obviously, but we know that the uh, Irish fans and Leinster will travel in numbers. Can Glasgow, what sort of crowd do you expect um, them to be able to turn out? Well, there's been the call to arms for, from, from Glasgow and I think Scottish rugby in general. This is going to be it's a big showcase event, and I think I'd like to think the Scottish rugby public will get behind the, the final and certainly that there was a flood of tickets after Glasgow booked their place in the final. I think they'll be looking at thirty five to forty thousand oh, at, at Celtic Park, which will be a really good crowd up on where it was last season and I think it'll be a cracking contest. What an occasion and what a what a stadium to, to play a final in. And obviously I, I anticipate it'll be really keenly contested. Rory, thanks very much. Looking forward to speaking to you. Possibly when we know what's uh, transpired. Thanks very much, mate. Great stuff. Cheers, Brian. Cheers, Rory. A few other things before we speak to Rob Vickerman about the uh, London Sevens. Let's look at the Premiership Player of the Year nominations. Corbus Reinach, Alex Good, Stephen Loatua, Mac Fessick, Fafta Clerk and Danny Cipriani. If you had to plump one, two, maybe, one of those... Well, I mean, all good candidates. Yeah, I mean, Faf de Klerk is crucial for sale. He's just been unbelievable, you know, fit for the whole season. And he's just taken them to another level. So not single-handedly. Cause so is Reinach. I mean, he, yeah. it's interesting, the best best three Springbok number nines are probably not <laughs> anywhere near there uh, domestically. And it, and it relates to the team and where they are in the league, doesn't yeah. it? So yeah. th- those two players have been... Really good. Alex Good, I mean, he's been fantastic. And Cipriani's brought a completely different edge to uh, to Gloucester. So, you know, there's some, some great players there, but I'd probably go for Faftoclerk. Interesting. If you get European player of the year, you'd think you'd get English premiership player of the year, wouldn't you? But uh, I don't think that will be the case. I might go for Reinach, but... Uh, different panel, Brian, Yeah, different it? panel completely, all, all subjective. We now know the uh, outcome of the uh, Falau appeal. Um, he's been sacked, been confirmed by Australian rugby. I never thought there'd be a different outcome, to be honest. No. Well done. You know, Rugby Australia. It's the right decision. Israel's career, he will have learned that rugby is about diversity. It's different uh, characters, different experience, background, cultures, face. And to come out with that and to have no uh, kind of repentance to it is the right decision. And the only rider I'd add to this or the uh, only extra comment is the people who've been saying 
RFU soft, you know, Villapola. No, I didn't. And this is where people need to read. I know it's difficult to read properly. He didn't endorse the comments. He actually explained them. I thought his explanation was complete nonsense, mm. actually. But that doesn't mean to say, I mean, people say he liked the tweet. I like all sorts of stuff that abuses me. You know why? Because it's the easiest way to save it, because Twitter doesn't have a save button. <laughs> and people say you can bookmark it. I don't want thousands of bloody bookmarks, <laughs> actually. If I, why don't you just have a save button? Then everyone, this nonsense goes away. So I'm sorry, if you're going to have a go at the RFU and Willy Puller, wait, before you do that, actually read what he said. You know, do, do him the courtesy of that. And then if you're still thick enough to think that that applies, then there's no help for you. Anyway, why don't we switch our attention to what is always a colourful occasion. It's the London Sevens this weekend. Rob Vickerman, who's a Sevens guru, amongst other things, is on the line there. Uh, Rob, hello, mate. Hi, Brian. How are you well? I'm all right. First of all, can we get this out of the way? Are people allowed to dress up for this or not? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think there's a bit of room a few years back and they tried to curtail that on the back of it being pretty raucous. But I think if it's Sevens... It's more than acceptable. In fact, you're probably the minority if you're not in fancy dress. So get rid of the brogues and just start some yeah. of the old... Uh, all the, the cut-off cargoes, you know, which is a middle class. <laughs> one of your, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, what, what's wrong with a dolphin though. costume anyway? Uh, look, I mean, however much you want to joke about that, the stuff on the field will be serious. I mean, all the top teams are there, uh, including the current series leaders, which will be a surprise to many people who don't follow it, who are the USA. Yeah, well, it's been one of those years that really has blown everyone's minds, to be honest. I mean, you talk about the USA, everybody mentions about them being a sleeping giant. And quite rightly, if they tapped into like 1% of their potential athletic ability from both NBA and NFL, it'd be a pretty frightening concept. But the only thing that USA haven't had on the 7 Series is, is consistent success, which is ironic because that's exactly what the US market needs. So if you win in America, you become noticeable, you get airtime, and obviously that's a pretty significant piece. 300 million people across there and they're mad on their sport. So it's a perfect fit. It's also a very short and attentive span, so you don't exactly need to be uh, someone that can last three or four hours at a venue. So it really is the perfect model for them. And to be honest, this year has been remarkable. They hit five finals on the bounce for the first five tournaments. Didn't win one until their home event. Las Vegas been the fifth tournament and they took it down. Home victory. It was absolutely iconic. The second year in a row They've won Las Vegas 7. So they're currently sitting top. However, haven't hit a final in their last three. So a bit of pressure on, but I think they're pretty well suited to not only potentially win this year, but also automatically qualify for the Olympics, which is a big story from this year. Do you think USA can translate the 7s into 15s? And what are some of the main challenges they're facing to develop their game in that area? Great question. I actually probably say no off the bat because sevens is just completely unique in terms of their transition of skill set. So you can get someone like a Perry Baker or a Carlin Isles, the two names that your listeners may well know from that USA team. But if not, they're basically, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but they're cast-offs from an American football model. So Carlin Isles, uh, also a track sprinter, he got to the semifinals or would have done the Olympics in 2012 with his time. Something like, I think it was 10, 10.08, one of his fastest 100-meter times. So really does transition well to sevens because of the nature of the beast, that mm. it's not particularly technical in terms of the nuances of the game. Yeah. Obviously, the kicking game, not as, as prominent as 15s. And then you look at the USA uh, in terms of the MLR, which is growing. That, for me, is how they grow it. Now, I don't think 
there's a better nation out there that can sustain both the sevens model and the fifteens model just mm. because of the sheer size of it. Mm. And as this franchise rolls on with MLR, I think we're going to see more and more fifteen players choose that route. However, for me at the moment, there is very little transition of fifteens and sevens. I think they're now two very different sports within you know the overarching model of rugby. I mean, the huge challenge for them is is the physical makeup of the country, isn't it? Play on the east and the west. To play between the two costs you thousands, tens of thousands, just to get the squads, you know, to and yeah. from and so on, all those things. Let's have a look at the, uh, if you don't mind, uh, the other the teams, because all the big names are there. Yeah, Pool A, yeah. South Africa, England's Pool has New Zealand in, as well as Scotland <laughs> Island, and then uh, Fiji, who are defending their title in uh, Pool B. Who do you expect to show them why? Well, I actually did the draw on the pitch after Singapore, and I stood there with James Rodwell as the English. Oh, well Lord. done! And each well done. Each one of these names came out for England's group. You're thinking, "Oh my God, what on earth's happening?" And even the, the nice story as well is Ireland, who are technically the invitational team. They're now celebrating being on the World Seven Series as of next year. So they want to qualify in Hong Kong. You talk about golden ticket is Willy Wonka-esque. <laughs> Ireland winning that title in Hong Kong as a qualifying team now means they represent on all ten of the World Series events next year. And actually, with them in England's pool as well, a little bit nerve-wracking because last year they got the bronze, which was just an incredible story. As an invitational team to take down some serious nations was really impressive from them. So I'm excited to see how they're going to go. South Africa and Trinity at this point um, really really well. They've got such a crazily strong academy system. They really do bring some good players. They're bringing them back in. But the, the whole thing, again, about the Olympic qualification means that everybody's basically fine for England to do badly because if England don't make the quarterfinals and they've got New Zealand, Scotland and Ireland in their group, then the top four automatically qualify for the Olympics, which is huge. Rob, the game of sevens, I mean, how has it tactically changed? Because it used to be sort of side to side and now the, the, the kind of plays are completely different. I mean, what, what kind of, what's happened in terms of the philosophy? Is it around pace or...? I think it's probably professionalism. I mean, someone yourself, as you'd have been pretty good at the old sevens game, but not as many high balls in sevens. But, you know, <laughs> I didn't have you know, a pace, mate. You know that. You know, I didn't have a pace. But meters. I think, you know, since professionalism really started creeping in in South Africa with the first team in 2008, England soon followed in 2009, and then the rest of the teams pretty much coming through. You just have so much more time to work on your conditioning, your specific skill sets. And now if you watch a game of sevens, it is mind-blowing. Bearing in mind how big the pitch is, how fit these players are, and that error count is basically one or two in a game. So the seven-minute concept of being a half of rugby is now long gone. And often, I'd say from the broadcasting point of view, it's an absolute killer because games are running for 16, 17, 18 minutes because their skill level is so high. Yeah. It's, it's just staggering. And you're right with that. We've moved away from this side-to-side type of model. It still helps you if you've got gas, you've got out-and-out speed. That's always going to do you well. But just the sheer physicality of the teams now. I mean, you go and watch sevens and you're walking past them. Your jaw's probably not as low as seeing some of the 15s players who really are mutants of species now. But they're big men in sevens now. And, and the women specifically have, have really increased their physicality as well. So when you get increased physicality, you get more collisions, you're getting more outrageous pieces of skill to break down the defences. And for me, that's why the entertainment factor is now shot up because quite literally six or seven teams can win tournaments, and, and that is what the crowd want to see. Uh, Rob, I'm sure it'll be up to its normal standard. As you say, the double significance with the qualification for the Olympic Games makes it yeah. uh, hugely important. But thanks very much uh, for joining us. Thanks very much for 
uh, giving us a lowdown. Always a pleasure, Moira. Cheers. Just before we uh, wrap, let's look at playoff finals. Can you see either of the third and fourth Gloucester or Saints springing a surprise? I can. I can see Gloucester doing one over Saris. Just because with the European Cup win for Saris, their players have had a good good social. They had a kind of second team. No more than Alex Good. <laughs> has he got home yet? <laughs> oh, I'm told he has got home. It's brilliant. He had gum shield and everything. <laughs> it's fantastic effort. And it will really be a measure of Saracens if they can, they can come through. I know they had a second team playing against Worcester, but I just have a feeling Gloucester are just starting to take their game to the next level. They just have cuter angles of running. Their forward pack looks supreme in line-out and scrummage. So I think that could be a shock there. I think Gloucester will win it, but I think Exeter will be too good for Saints. Again, their relentless nature of them keeping the ball, and they play for 80 minutes. They're full committed. So I think I could see an Exeter-Gloucester final. I agree with you on the second one. The, the first one I, you, I've learned to over a, a long time and painfully not to bet against Saracens, but I think, first of all, Gloucester will have to play outstandingly well. Yeah. And they'll need that bit of luck. Mm. I'm talking about the decision that, you know, goes can go either way. You know, no amount of bias, but just goes in their favour. Yeah. Bit of a bounce of a ball and, and so on. If that happens, then yes, I, I believe they can. Who knows? We will be uh, back next week to uh, give everyone the lowdown. Right? Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's Brian Moore's Full Contact with the Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, Matt Perry, and producer, Abby Patterson. Please... Do subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review if you haven't done already. Positive or negative. And come back next week. But for now, it's goodbye.